In the 1960s, the civil rights movement rocked this nation. While black Americans had, in theory, been granted citizenship rights a century earlier, they had, in fact, been denied participation in the democratic process through the states of the old Confederacy. While the 1954 Brown v. Board of Education ruling of the Supreme Court established that black Americans could no longer be segregated from whites, the power structure in the Old South resisted change. Though directed by congressional action in late 1950s to permit black voter registration, southern states reluctantly agreed in theory while having no intention of permitting this on a wide scale. Since political power could be gained from blacks being able to vote, this was a major thrust in the fight for civil rights that heated up in the 1960s. Our guest today took part in that struggle. Sherry Holbrook was an 18-year-old freshman at UC Berkeley when she elected to get involved. She's written a compelling remembrance of what took place in her book, you came here to die, didn't you? Registering black voters, one soul at a time, South Carolina, 1965. We're keen to discuss this important chapter in American history, so it's with pleasure we say welcome to Radio Parallax, Sherry holbrook Labitas. Thank you. It's delightful to be here. I'd like to start by noting that uh, what you did at age 18 was, in fact, a dangerous undertaking. What, uh, what led up to your decision to take part in, in this activity? I think that I can blame a high school teacher. <laughs> His name was Bruce Harvey, and we were studying on civil disobedience by Henry David Thoreau, and at the end, as he closed the book, he looked out at the class and said, what are you willing to die for? And that got me thinking about it, and I knew there were a lot of things to die for. There was Vietnam, for sure, and there was a civil rights movement and all kinds of other things going on around us. I didn't decide. I just started watching and listening. And I went to Berkeley in a year where there was a lot of discontent. But I think it was watching the problems in Birmingham, Alabama, where children were, were part of the demonstrations and they were beaten and washed down the street by hoses. And then there was the... I have a dream speech, and it was so beautiful. And less than three weeks later, a Baptist church in Birmingham, Alabama was bombed, and four little girls who were in Sunday school were killed. I got more interested. And in March of 1965, we had the Selma to Montgomery march. And when the first march occurred, the black marchers with the intention of walking from Selma to Montgomery, Alabama, about 50 miles, when they were stopped and beaten. And it was obvious that Bruce Harvey had had a point. What was I willing to die for? And having that kind of activity go on in my country was impossible. And then I had a TA who said... There won't be class anymore for a while. I'm going to Selma. And I thought, if he can go, why not me? The title of the book, it's a provocative title. You came here to die, didn't you? That's something that it turns out a boy in overalls actually said to you after you arrived in the South. Tell us about that interaction. We drove 
from Berkeley to Atlanta in three days, just trading off, driving. There were four of us in the car. And we were really exhausted when we arrived at Morris Brown College in Atlanta. And it was a black college. And we were all getting out of the car one way or the other. And this black kid walked up to me, like you said, and he said, you came here to die, didn't you? Because if you didn't, you need to get back in that car and go to New York or Chicago or wherever it is you came from. We had talked about what would happen if we got hurt or even died, but it was all very cerebral. We'd seen it on TV, but we none of us had been in a position like that. And so this young man really got my attention. And I think it's when I finally started being afraid that this might not be an adventure. This was a serious undertaking. And I gather you were, you were no sooner arrived than a lot of leaders of the civil rights movement came to kind of uh, give you guys all a pep talk and some instruction, and included among them was Martin Luther King. Yes, he was. He was supposed to speak one night, and for some reason he had to cancel. And it was like, maybe he's really not coming. His speeches are what got me down there, along with what I was seeing on my own. And I was a little taken aback. But his not being there was a typical part of the civil rights movement because nothing ran according to plan. And whether a car broke down or somebody ended up getting carted off to jail would change everything. But he did speak the next night. And he was wonderful, just like always. But this time I was nervous. In the past, he inspired me. And this was very different for me. I, I was taking him much more seriously at a different level because I realized that I had changed my role. I was no longer a co-ed paying attention to the news. I was on my way to being a civil rights worker, and I did not want to become part of the news. Well, Gandhi uh, was famous for his advocacy of nonviolence. Dr. Martin Luther King was equally famous for suggesting that was really the only way to go, and that's one thing to talk about it as out of the history books, but uh, you were down there getting instructed, and they actually had to give you training as to what to do so how not get hurt if you're beaten up. They did, indeed. A comment to be made before I talk about that. We were told that we should be nonviolent at all times, but they explained what they meant about that. I went with the Southern Christian Leadership Conference. They were almost all ministers, and they their story was we would do what Christ would do, and that's turn the other cheek. And we Expect that you should too. And so one reason to be nonviolent is it's a belief. The second reason to be nonviolent is it's a strategy. If I'm with a bunch of people and I end up fighting with somebody and another bunch of people, it can become a riot and I can get more hurt. And then the third was that if you're walking down a road all by yourself and you're followed by a car full of white men and they are getting closer and closer, you can be nonviolent if you want. I would run like hell, and if they catch you, then you decide whether you fight back or sure, not. Sure. There's no televisions or reporters to get the point. We were taught how to, if we were sitting, for instance, in a chair, and somebody tried to remove us physically, how to feel like a stone and slip off onto the floor so it's harder to pick us up. 
if we were knocked down, the idea was to fold our hands behind our neck, put our knees against our chest, and just get into a tight ball so that we might get hurt, but not as badly, for instance, as if we were laying out flat and could have our, the whole front of our bodies beaten up. We did some things where we had to prove that we could be nonviolent because there was to have a loose cannon with right. us might get us all into trouble. And so we would push each other around, and then we spit on each other, and we did, you know, we'd hit each other, uh, a ring of people around us doing these things just to make sure. Because if somebody got angry enough to fight back, then that person couldn't go to demonstrations. There were lots of other things they could do, right. but they couldn't go to demonstrations. Well, in reading your book, you you were sent out to Pineville, South Carolina, and and it's sort of it's remarkable to be reading this book where you're describing something out of another nation. You don't think this would be happening in the United States. You guys had to pass a a roadblock that was set up to screen people, mm-hmm. which again, this is the South in 1965. It sounds like something in like you know Lebanon or something like that. Yes. But but here it was 65, and you guys and they really were very uh, I guess you say rather aggressive in trying to discourage you. Yes, they went through our bags. They made us get out of the car. They made a show. This is one little white man that set it up. It wasn't like it was the police or anything, but I don't know what would have happened if we just kept going and hadn't stopped when we were told to. But he checked all our IDs, and he got out our bags. In the book, I refer to it as being like Nazi Germany. I never ever been treated that way. And it was his attitude that made it all so possible because we did what we were told, because he acted like we were supposed to. Well, when you got there, I gather the local white population uh, was, I guess you'd say, not happy to see you guys set up shop, maybe not necessarily really being in your face about it, but nobody was too welcoming. Nobody was too welcoming. Before we left Charleston, we'd actually had a, a white minister come down and try and find out why we wanted to cause so much trouble. When we got to Pineville, one of the really nice things about Pineville is it was practically all black. There might have been two or three families. We're talking about a very large county, and Pineville was a very large area, made up mostly of tobacco and, and cotton and cornfields. And most of the white people lived farther out than Pineville, or they lived in St. Stephen. At one time, Pineville had been almost all white except for slaves. And they had all the big plantations and everything. And then during Sherman's march to the sea, they were all burned. And some rebuilt, but then they were flooded out because they put into water systems. And so all those plantations were gone, and all that was left were were the black people who had worked on them. A very poor area. And not very many white people, but they found us anyway. Well, let's talk about the Ku Klux Klan. They they certainly were a force to be reckoned with, and before long, uh, you guys found yourselves kind of in their crosshairs, and they were making great efforts to curtail all the efforts you were you were extending. Burning down a church, even. I mean, you guys were, you were witness to all that. Yes. Burn, burn down a church, burn down a school. Yes. The church was the church where we had most of our mass meetings. We went to several churches a week, and, but there was one church we went to every, every Sunday, and that was Redeemer Reformed Episcopal Church. 
And since we had all our meetings there, a couple of, of white men in a pickup truck chose to Molotov cocktails or something uh, and burned it down. And it had been the largest church in, in the whole county. Probably the worst episode in the whole book, to the scariest moment. Uh, you were part of a rather nasty reception in a local restaurant. It may not have been overtly from the, from the Klan, but somebody shoved one of your, uh, your co-workers right through the, uh, the glass door. Uh, yes, and it wasn't, it wasn't the owner or somebody like that. It was another customer. Uh, a group of people went in, black and white, together, Two gals and four four guys, and they they went in and they sat down and nobody said anything or did anything. They just let them sit, and they were totally shocked that nothing had happened. They weren't even locked out. And then one of the customers had a fit because they were there, and he basically either drug or pushed or threw people out, and the last one was a woman who was the head of our project. Uh, Florence was from New Zealand, and he picked her up and threw her out the door, but they had closed the door, so she literally went through a plate glass door and then down the steps, and, and then the owner took her to the hospital. Describe how the doctor basically doesn't even bother to clean the wound out or give her anesthetic. He just sews it up. Exactly. And, and calls her a bitch and says, you need, people need to get the hell out of here. And don't ever come back, because if you do, I personally will make sure that you don't survive it. And we were, she was dealt with in the black section of the, of the hospital, which we had heard called the butcher shop. She had automatically gone into the black section because... She was with black people when she was hurt. And they started to turn her away until she explained where she'd gotten hurt. And then she was treated the way she was. And she didn't go back to have her stitches taken out. I guess not. Your, uh, your day-to-day process down there was to get people to register to vote. And 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 sounds like, as you say, soul by soul, you were achieving that. Um, how, did you, how did you convince people to go down and register? It's a good question. Sometimes I wonder how we did it. <laughs> myself because it was a big responsibility for them to take on take on I have a friend named Joe Freeman who is a civil rights worker and she made the point that if you're going to register to vote you better be absolutely sure because it's such a public act that you're going to wait in a li- line where you can have your picture taken or whatever else, and then you're going to go in and sign a piece of paper which said that you're there, and you're not supposed to be there. Basically, we would first say that we were working for Martin Luther King. That got us in the door. And then we would explain that we were there registering voters, and we would ask them if they would vote, and almost always they said no. And then we would say, well, why not? And they'd say, well, because my house will be burned or my husband will lose his job or my kids will be thrown out of school or some, there was a long list. And we would come back and say, well, he may get fired this time, but if you have the right to vote, there will be no jobs. And, and your kids may be out of school, but very shortly they'll be back in school again. And eh, still not getting anywhere. And finally, the last question was, do you want your children to live the life you have led? 
And the answer was always no. And then we could say, well, on next week we're taking this busload of people down to register to vote. And you really will make a difference. And the majority of them didn't go. In eight weeks, we managed to register 580 workers. And we sure talked to a lot more of them than that. In, in Berkeley County, South Carolina, blacks were only allowed to register one day a month. And we got there too late for the first month. Actually, it fell on the 4th of July. And we had to go through a lot of negotiating to get another day. But we only had three days in that whole, that whole eight, nine-week period. At the end of that time, we knew that the pro program was ending. But we were out of money. We had raised money in Berkeley before we left. And we had, for the whole project, and we were each supposed to bring money. Uh, we were supposed to bring $10 a week for room and board and $50 to get there. And they never said anything about bringing money to get home. <laughs> well, speaking of that, you sort of, I guess, had, a, had an agreement with talking to people out there that you, rather than return to Berkeley directly, might want to participate in a black uh, college uh, I guess in South Carolina, was it uh, Georgia? But you, but you did. Yes. It, w it was more a challenge. One of the young men who was 17, maybe, kept asked me one day in August, he said, you keep trying to talk us into going to white schools. Have you ever been to a black school? And I was like, I'm from California, huh, honey. And he said, well, then how do you know there's so much worse? And I explained that we did, did our research. And he said, if you go to a black school, I'll go to a white school. And, I, and I, here we are out in the middle of nowhere. And I said, you get me an application blank to go to a black school, and I'll go. Or at least I'll turn it in. And then I'll go if they take me. Mm -hmm. And I thought, well, we were leaving in three days. Never happened. And he showed up the next morning with an application blank. And I'm thinking... Yeah, yeah. So I fill it out, and I mail it off, thinking they would never take me. And two weeks later, I called back to check in with everybody because I was going crazy in California. And my acceptance had arrived. And I had to find a way to finance it because my father said, I'll never speak to you again if you do this. <laughs> and I got a hold of the NAACP and said, I, I'm willing to integrate this school but I don't have any money, can you, will you? And they said yes. So I went to Allen University, which is an African Methodist Episcopal school in Columbia, South Carolina for a semester. Well, you mentioned your dad a second ago. I, I think he was probably glad to get you back from that first harrowing episode. Uh, and it might be, I would ask you, what message do you have for people listening or perhaps the parents of people who may want to volunteer in a difficult, dangerous place today. What would you say to them? I, the background I came from, the, I can remember President Kennedy saying something like, ask not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. And I still believe that we need to solve the problems that we're facing. And right now, it feels even worse than it felt in, 60, in the 60s with the civil rights movement and, and Vietnam. We have so many problems that we aren't solving. My mom's response when I said I was going to go to the South was, 
you can't go. And I said, but mom, somebody's got to go. And she said, well, it doesn't have to be my daughter. About two weeks before she died, we were talking about this, the experience. And I, I had to apologize to her and say I had no, I had never, I've never been a parent, but I've taught a lot of kids. And I had no idea how awful it must have been for my folks. And I, so I apologized. And her response was, well, honey, somebody's got to do it. Our system works on people being involved. And one of the things that people are not doing now is getting involved. Last election, only 42% of the population even bothered to vote. That needs to change. And I think with the terrorism that we seem so afraid of, might realize that we need to take a chance because terrorists are, are in the world anyway. I could be shopping at a grocery store and have it explode in, all around me, and that would be too bad. But taking a chance and standing up for what you believe in is what we're all supposed to do. So if it were my kid... I would say you have to let them do it. And they'll come back stronger than they were when they left. Well, I guess my final question and comment uh, together would be that what you did certainly got people registered to vote, and that from that did stem power. George Wallace went from being an ardent segregationist. And when I talk to people today, people have a hard time grasping the idea that being a segregationist was a mainstream political position not so long ago. But that Wallace, once blacks began to vote, he began to embrace them as constituents, and a, a lot a lot came of that. I mean, it was like he was much loved, I understand, but in the end, by the black population in, in Alabama, for better or worse. But as we speak today, there's a, a black man in the White House. So, I mean, it must just be, I mean, the perspective for you must be uh, remarkable. There was a lady in my book, her name was Rebecca Crawford, and she couldn't read and couldn't write, although she told me she could. And I... I talked her into going on the bus to help other people register to vote. And we got on the bus, and after a few miles, she reached over and said, Child, I ain't never registered. And I knew that. And I said, but you can and you will today. All you have to do is be able to sign your name. And we worked on it for about for maybe 20 minutes, and she never learned how. And she maybe promised to come back and, and talk to her and teach her how to write so she could register to vote. And when I did go back uh, several weeks later, I met her on the road, and she, she was, all, thank you, Jesus, and lifted her hands to the, to the heavens and, uh, in thanks because I had finally shown up again. And she said to me, look what I can do. And she picked up a stick, and in the sand, she wrote her name, Rebecca. But each letter was written in a different hand. So she, was she had never learned to read and write. So I was talking to her daughter, Lucille, in 2005. And I said, Lucille, your mom was such, so courageous. And she said, yes, she was. And I said, it's too bad she never registered to vote. And she said, what are you talking about? She registered. I said, she couldn't write her name. And she said, she went to that school you started until she could write her last name. And she said, then she registered to vote. And she voted in every election 
and she liked most to vote for president. And she got there before I did. And I thought, how would Rebecca have felt if she had actually had a chance to vote for Obama? And so I do. I take, I take this election very personally. <laughs> well, I, I certainly congratulate you for your efforts, and I hope people will, will read the book, which is You Came Here to Die, Didn't You? Registering Black Voters One Soul at a Time, South Carolina, 1965. When speaking with Sherry Holbrook Labidus about the book and hope that uh, you know people will can find out more. I believe you have a website people can go to or I do. It's SherryLabidus.com and that's S H E R I E L A B E D I S dot com. There's information, there's pictures. You can buy the book there too. Well I'm sure plenty are gonna want to do that. Oh it's also on Amazon. Sherry, thank you so much for speaking with us. Thank you.